Well, good morning again. It's good to see your faces. My family was on vacation this last week, and I managed to catch a cold on vacation. I'm not sure how that happens, but, uh, you know, nothing like a beach and a head cold. So let me do this. Let me pray for us, and I've got this handheld so that when I, if I have a coughing spasm or fit, one of you can just come up and finish the sermon. Sound good? Anybody, any takers? Awesome. I guess I'll have to finish it. All right. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for drawing us into this place, and I just want to thank you for the even just overseeing the songs that were selected to be sung this morning. They ministered to my heart and my soul to declare that it is well with my soul because of your work, Lord Jesus, to think on the reality that my sin, not in part, but the whole has been removed from me because of what you have done. And that calls us to pursue holiness, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word today. Think about this command to be holy because you are holy. We are the thing that I continue, Lord, to to just wrestle with and grapple with and feel the tension of is my lack of holiness, and yet your declaration that the blood of Jesus has made me holy. And we need to feel the tension of those things today. We want to see you as you are and not lessen you, not make you less than what you are to make ourselves comfortable. We want to see you in your holiness, and so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and teach us today, instruct us, that you'd illuminate your word for us and help us to obey all that it says. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be in a couple places today, but that will be the primary place where we are. We're in the middle of this series, Deep Lives, which is our summer series, and let me remind you of kind of our intention in doing this series, lest you think it's just a kind of a bunch of standalone sermons about character. We're doing this sermon series because we want you to be reminded that our character, uh, what we call deep lives, being people of deep lives with deep character, is really central to our mission as a church. You know, we say that our mission is that we uh, exist because we are seeking the good of the West Shore and beyond through deep truth deep lives and deep love for the glory of Christ, right? We say that a lot. You get tired of hearing us say it, I'm sure, but it's important that we keep reminding ourselves that that's what God has called us to be as a church. Now, you recognize in the middle of that mission statement there was that phrase, deep lives, this idea that the way that we go about glorifying Christ and seeking the good of the West Shore is by being people who are marked by the character of Christ. And so we're spending time this summer simply thinking about what does it look like to have those character traits. And we've identified as a part of our way of thinking, of shepherding you as a church, as leaders within the church, elders and staff, we've identified what we think are 10 core character traits that the scriptures talk about that followers of Jesus are supposed to exemplify. And so we've been working our way through those. That's what we've been doing, is just trying to work our way through those, being intentional about talking about those. Now, we do that all the time, we don't just do it when we have a series called Deep Lives. We talk about this as anytime we encounter it in the scriptures as we're walking through it. But this summer, we thought in particular it would be good for us to spend 10 weeks together, and I think we're in week four now, talking about different character traits that we must possess. So we talked about being loving. We talked about being faithful. Last week, Nate unpacked what it meant for us to persevere. Was anybody challenged by the, challenge, the call to persevere? My goodness. And today we turn our attention to one that is particularly daunting to me. You might find it daunting to yourself as well. And it's to talk about what does it mean that we are to be a holy people. That's a really churchy word, uh, that idea of holy. It's not, I mean, probably in your place of business, you don't encounter anyone saying that word holy all that often, do you? Where someone says, you know, we should really be holy. 
And you think, well, you know, that would probably mean something very different if it was said in a context of work than it would be here. And it's this one of these church words that we use all the time. We want to see if we can't understand it a little bit better today. And then ask ourselves the question we've been asking every week in this series is, how do I become holy? So how do I become faithful? How do I become a person who perseveres? How do I become loving? How do I become a person who is marked by holiness? How do we pursue holiness? There's a great book I'll recommend to you by uh, an author named Jerry Bridges, and it's called The Pursuit of Holiness. Highly recommend it to you. Uh, short read, but very challenging. Really one of the definitive works, I think, on what it means to be a people who pursue holiness, both in our thought lives, in our actions, in our emotional lives. Uh, I've found it very helpful to myself. You might find it helpful to you as well. So, Again, this, this morning's subject is holiness, and specifically, how do I become holy? So let's talk about this. the first question that we need to answer is, what is holiness? When we use that term, what do we mean? We said already that it's kind of a churchy word. It's one that we typically use here, but not elsewhere. So what is holiness? What does it mean? Well, let's give a definition of that. Here's my definition that I would offer to you, and it's this. The, the Greek and the Hebrew terms, they simply mean set apart, something that is consecrated or set apart for God's purposes, right? Here's how I might lengthen that a little bit and try and explain it. I would say that when we talk about holiness, and the Bible talks about holiness, it is talking about the moral purity that marks us as set apart for God and completely his. The moral purity that marks us as set apart for God and completely his. That's really what holiness is. If you wanted to boil that down to two words, you might boil it down to moral purity. So let's take the two parts of that definition, though, because there's really two parts to it. The idea of moral purity, and then the back half of that, the idea of being morally pure as a mark of being set apart for God and his purposes. And both those aspects are important because if we view holiness simply as just being pure, like having nothing impure, not being in contact with anything impure, separating ourselves from all that is evil and sinful, if we view it that way, we can view it simply as something that is disconnected from God himself. It can really just become, a, become about purity in and of itself, a ritualistic pursuit. But if we view it differently than that, if, it, if our purity is about being set apart for the purposes of God, which is how the scriptures always talk about it, then it becomes an intrinsically relational idea. Do you see that? It becomes an idea that is about how we relate to and are in relationship with God. Now let me hit the pause button here real quick because I want this to be as tangible as possible. I'm going to try and give us at the end of this the way the scriptures talk about it, there are three ways the scriptures, when it talks about holiness and putting away sin, there are three things that, that they come back to again and again and again as strategies for pursuing holiness. And I'm gonna get to those. But we can just talk about that in the abstract or we can talk about it in a very concrete way. And I wanna see if I can't make it as concrete as possible. Here's my encouragement to you. I want you to think about now, if you need to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. I want you to think about the thing that God has sort of been communicating to you about in recent days, perhaps for the last year, maybe two years, maybe many years, something that is impure in your life that he has been calling you to put away. He's been calling you to, to get rid of, to remove from life. I just want you to think about that for a moment. What is that thing? Obviously, don't shout it out for us, but something probably comes to mind. Something comes to mind for me, for sure thinking about things that God in his holiness and calling me to be holy has said, Trent, I want you to put this away. I want you to be done with this. 
And when I've tried to pursue that, at times I felt weak and fallen and not done a very good job of it. And at times I've had some victory over it uh, and been able to walk in a way that I'm not participating in that thing or thinking on that thing or whatever it is. So I just want you to have that in your mind as we move forward because the th- I want you to be able to apply the different strategies we're going to talk about today for how to actually pursue holiness in a very tangible way. I want you to have in your mind something concrete that you might begin to exercise those strategies on. The thing that God has said, put that away. Don't do that anymore. Don't think that way anymore. Don't go there anymore. So I just want you to have that in your mind. Now, let's return for a second. So unpause now. Let's return now to this idea of what is holiness. And we said that the first part of that definition is that it means moral purity. So holiness means separation from all that is sinful and impure. When we say that God is holy, what we mean is that he has no part in anything that is sinful or impure. They have no part of him. Now God's holiness in particular is a really important concept. It's a really important character trait of God. We want God to be holy because it defines all his other attributes. So when we talk about the fact that God is faithful, he is always faithful in a holy way. When we talk about God being just, he is always just in a holy way. When we talk about him being loving, his love is always holy and pure. There is nothing impure in his love. So his holiness pervades every other character trait that he demonstrates. It's never separate from those things. Does that make sense? And that's tremendously important because we've all been loved, perhaps with a love that was impure, but God's love is holy and perfectly pure. So it invades and informs everything that he does. The other reason I would say that I think it's so important to comprehend God's holiness is that it is again and again, time and time again, uh, in the scriptures, when people encounter God, it's not first and foremost his love or his faithfulness or any of his other attributes that they comment on first. What is the attribute that gets commented on most and first when someone encounters the presence of the living God? It's typically his holiness. It's typically coming in contact with him causes them to reflect upon his holiness. You think about Moses in Exodus chapter three and he's encountering God in the burning bush where God is giving him a command to do a job for him. God wants him to do something and God Causes to gets his attention by having a bush on fire, but that doesn't burn up. And when he approaches, when Moses approaches the burning bush to see what's going on, God speaks to him out of the bush. And the first thing God declares to him is, the place where you're standing is holy ground. Remove your shoes. Take off your sandals because where you are requires something uncommon of you. You are not to approach me in the way that you approach other things and places. You must approach me differently. Or Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six has this vision of the Lord. And when he has the vision of the Lord, there are two angels flying and each has six wings and the angels themselves can't gaze upon the purity of God. So with two wings, they cover their eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet and with two wings, they fly as if to say, where we have been is not pure enough to be in the presence of this God and we must cover our eyes because we can't gaze upon him. And Isaiah's response is to fall down and to say, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I'm, I live among a people of unclean lips. Something has to be done. He says, as Isaiah thinks he's come to his end. He is going to die because he has gazed upon the holiness of God. And one of the angels takes a coal from the altar that's before God and purifies his lips. Something has to be done in order for Isaiah to be made pure enough to be in the presence of the living God. Or how about in Revelation chapter four? 
when we see four living creatures surrounding the throne of God in heaven and around them 12 or 24 elders surrounding his throne. And what do the four living creatures declare again and again? They don't declare loving, loving, loving. Faithful, faithful, faithful. What do they say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when they declare God's holiness, the 24 elders fall down on their faces and they take the crowns on their heads and they throw them at the feet of the Lord and they say, worthy are you. God's holiness, his perfect purity is meant to evoke awe and reverence and humility. It's also meant to show us how impure we are in comparison, by contrast to him. No one has ever encountered God's holiness and said, I think I'm good. Every living being who has ever come into the presence of the living God and his perfect purity has in that moment thought that they were going to be undone. As I prepared for this all week, I thought, I don't have the words to express what this is like. I know that you, my people, need an experience of the holiness of God, just as I do, an experience of the holiness of God that goes beyond words. That you must gaze upon the holiness of God in his word and in prayer, that the spirit of God would communicate to you something about his perfect purity because until you see his perfect holiness and until I see it, we will be very little motivated to pursue holiness in our own lives. It's the holiness of God that he possesses, that is his very nature. That's what causes us to want to put away sin from our lives. That's what motivates us and moves us. It's not just that someone said, there's some things you should do and shouldn't do some things that please God and don't please God. It's that God in his very nature is perfectly pure and we want to be with him. Now, let's talk about the second part of that definition just quickly and then we'll move forward because I want to save plenty of time here at the end. The other part that I said of that definition is that whenever the Bible talks about the holiness of God, it doesn't just talk about, or I'm sorry, whenever it talks about the holiness that we are called to have as God's people, when it says you are to be holy, the idea is that we are not just to be uh, rule followers. It's not just that we're to be without sin. It's that we are to be set apart for God's purposes so that there's something God wants to do with us and through us. There's a way he wants to be in relationship with us. There's a way he wants to use us to extend his rule and his reign into the world, and holiness is required for that. And so he says, I want you to be holy because I want you to be set apart for me. So whenever the Bible talks about holiness, it's not just talking about some living up to some standard. It's talking about being set apart for the purposes of God so that we are marked by being his, holy his, at his disposal. Now, do you want to be at God's disposal for anything he wants? Do you want for God to be able to say, I think about D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see, he's a famous evangelist in Chicago years and years and years ago. He said, the world has yet to see what it would look like for a person to be wholly set apart for the purposes of God would look like. I want to be that man. You know, and I don't know if D.L. before he died would say he ever accomplished that or became that man. My guess is he'd probably say he didn't. But man, isn't that something that, that when you hear it said that you think, I want, yes. I resonate with that. I want to be a person completely 
at God's disposal, set apart for him. Anything he wants from me, for me, through me, I want it to be done. I don't want there to be anything in me that prevents God from using me in the kind of way that he wants to use me or communicating his nature and character. I want to be in close relationship with God. Holiness is not about reaching a standard. Holiness is about the character of God itself and aligning to that character. And so we are in relationship with him. This is what A.W. Tozer says about uh, the holiness of God in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, holiness is the moral condition necessary to the health of his universe. Since temporary presence in the world accents this, every wrathful act of God is an act of preservation of the creation. In other words, what Tozier is saying is that God's holiness is his way of of wanting to eradicate sin from the world because sin is a disease that has entered the world. And so when God even acts out of his wrath to eliminate sin, what he's doing is eliminating a virus from the world that he created. So that he is, that is his... uh, Standard. That is who God is. Now, let's move on to our next question. If the first question is, well, how do I, or what is holiness? Then the second question might be this. Why do I need to be holy? Why do I need to be holy? And I've touched on that already, but let me just point you to one scripture, and it's Hebrews 12, 14. It says this. Hebrews 12, 14 says after just talking about the discipline that God brings to his children as a good father disciplines his kids, that's how the chapter begins. And he says, look, God's gonna discipline you if he loves you, if you're his kid, because that's what a good dad does. And after talking about that, in verse 14 of chapter 12, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Did you catch that? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, the requirement for being in the presence of God is perfect and complete holiness. Nothing less. Now you probably recognize that creates a problem, doesn't it? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if we have any sense of what the holiness and purity of God is like when we come in contact with it, we recognize in ourselves a lack of that thing and we say, if this is true, if Hebrews 12, 14 is true, that no one will see God without holiness, then we're in trouble. We've got a problem because I don't possess the holiness that is required to see God. And so what, what do I do? Where do I turn? Now, my guess is if you've been in church a while, you, you're guessing the answer already, right? We're gonna go there in a moment, but let's talk about this for just a little bit more. Let's talk about how do we pursue holiness. Now, Look with me at Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six, you won't find the word holiness, but it is a chapter that talks about what it looks like to put away sin and to pursue being a person who is pure, not impure. As I said, as you look through the Bible, as you look through a bunch of different texts, there are essentially three things that that are linked to this call to be holy and pure. And those three things are this. There are three strategies, three ways that the Bible reminds us again and again to pursue holiness, to go after it, okay? So how do I pursue it? First way is by knowing your identity. The second way is by 
shifting your desires, and the third way is by knowing your future. Identity, desires, future. Identity, desires, future. So that's what I wanna talk about here just for the next few minutes. Look at Romans chapter six, starting in verse one, and let's read together. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Did you catch that? That the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me read verse 11, that last verse again. It's the key one. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that there is sin that we are entangled in. And there's this argument that's being made that if you're saved by grace, if you're saved by, by not by what you do, but by the fact that Jesus has died and risen from the dead and you've placed your faith in him, if that's how you're saved, by grace, not by your diligent works, then what is to prevent people from just saying, oh, well, I'll just keep on sinning and God's grace will abound even more. So the more sin... Excuse me. The more sin I commit, the more opportunity for grace, right? The more times God will get to say, ah, look at how much grace I get to pour out. So the argument then is that why not just keep sinning more and more so that grace might abound? And, and Paul is essentially, you see him saying that's a bad way to think, right? Did y'all catch that? He, said, he uses the strong double negative in the Greek, meganoita, which means no, may it never be, right? If you say no, absolutely not, you're saying a double, you're doubly saying that's wrong, right? So that's what he's essentially saying here. He's saying no, do not think that way. He says those who are saved by grace, don't you know that they've been buried with Christ in his death and then raised to walk with him in newness of life. He says, they are a people who now consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. So the first thing that he's getting at in terms of, okay, well, how do you practically put away sin? Let's say I don't have the attitude that this person in Romans 6 that Paul is responding to and saying, hey, I'll just keep on sinning and grace will abound and it'll be all good. Like, it, you know, it, it'll be fine. In fact, it'll bring God even more glory because look how much more grace was needed to save me. Awesome, right? He says, if I'm, not, if I'm not that person, but I am the person who's struggling and fighting and saying, look, I, I still, I, as we all do, wrestle with these patterns of sin, these choices, these thought life things that just, they don't go away easily. 
I mean, they're just, they're there and, and they are tough to get rid of. So that thing that you thought of, right? If it was easy to get rid of it, you probably would have been rid of it a while ago, right? My guess is it's hard. And so if it's hard to get rid of then then what do we do? Well, the first thing that he's saying is, if you're not the person who's saying, you know, I'll just keep on sinning, but you're striving and fighting, he's saying the first thing you need to do is to know who you are in Christ. You need to know that you've been given a new identity. Now, this is, this is key because a person who doesn't have a, a new identity, who at their core is still a sinner, rather than being at their core someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you don't have the inner resource needed to fight against the sin with which you are battling. So he's saying that what Christ has done is he's come in and he's transformed you into a new person, into a new thing. You're not the same thing that you were. And when you know that, and it's not, you can't just say it like one time and go, okay, now I know that. Now, now I know it, I got it, I'm good. You have to be reminding yourself of it again and again. Like when we say to you guys as leaders all the time, we say, hey, preach the gospel to yourselves. Preach the gospel to yourselves. And I think Jason said it to us a few weeks ago in his sermon, right? So remember to preach the gospel to yourselves daily because what we're reminding ourselves of is we're not who we were. And that's not self-help theology. That's not just me going, I'm, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and I'm strong enough. It's me saying, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't smart enough. And Jesus came in and he saved me by grace through faith. And I'm no longer what I was because of his power, because of what he's done, not because of anything that I was. And when we know that that's true, it fundamentally changes our disposition towards sin. It changes our approach to sin. Romans chapter eight says that we are no longer condemned Right, We're no longer condemned because of what Christ Jesus has done. And then it goes on in verse three of chapter eight to say that sin is condemned in the flesh. In other words, the person who's in Christ recognizes that their sin is not going to last forever, that it is dying. I was dying, but then Christ came in and gave me life. Now what is dying? Not me. The sin that is in me is the thing that is dying. And we need to have that fundamental change of disposition, that exchanged understanding of what has taken place in Christ. It's what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter six. It's what he talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six, whenever he's talking about um, impurity, he says to the Corinthians, you, you were these things, you did this, 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 and this, and he says, don't do those anymore. He says, such were some of you, but now in Christ you are washed, you are pure. He's saying fundamentally your identity has changed. He says it again in 2 Corinthians chapter five when he says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. He's saying something fundamentally different has happened to you. When Jesus comes in, he makes you a new creation, a new creature, a different thing, right? That's a few verses before verse 21 in chapter five of 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation, a new creature, something fundamentally different. Now, I'm harping on this. I know I'm harping on it. But it's the, it's the fundamental beginning spot for any fight against impurity. If you want to pursue holiness, you're not going to accomplish it by saying to yourself, I'm just at my very core a sinner and I'll just have to fight against that. The, the way that you can begin to pursue holiness is to recognize what has been done to you in Christ so that at your very core, you are something now holy. 
And now that has to exude out of you and has to conquer all the sin patterns that remain in you. But it's a battle from the inside out rather than from the outside in, which is a very different way to pursue holiness than most of us, I think, think of. Now, let's go to the next thing. Oh, actually, let me say this too. Just a practical thing, because one of the things I've been thinking about is, okay, well, how do I, how do I access that sense of my identity, of who I am in Christ. If all these scriptures are true, if, if Romans chapter six is true, if First Corinthians chapter six, if Second Corinthians chapter five, all those things are true. And knowing my identity, when the Bible goes again and again towards this put away sin, pursue holiness, and it tells me who I am, that's one of the fundamental things it does. How do I practically you know, do that. I mean, in addition to preaching the gospel to myself in the mirror every day and saying, okay, here's what's happened to you, Trent, in Christ. Here's what's been done to you. In addition to that, the other thing I would say is to, is to be around people who will remind you of that identity. Be around people who will remind you what you are. I mean, what the world typically tries to do to those of us who are followers of Jesus is to tell us how awful we are and, and how many mistakes we make. And they're not wrong. We make a lot of mistakes, right? But they tend to think of it as something that we are fundamentally in our core, hypocritical, fundamentally in our core, something, you know, this kind of jumbled. But it's fellow believers who should be reminding us that God has given us a, a, an exchanged identity, that he's gifted us his righteousness and put it in us. So that when we, challenge one another in our sin patterns. We challenge one another by reminding each other who we are and how we are to live out of the identity rather than just saying, stop doing that. We say, that's not who you are. You guys with me? Does that make sense? You've really gotta be, you can't do that alone. You've gotta be surrounded by other people. And friends, you need to make good practice of with others, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to make good practice of reminding one another of your identity in Christ. Okay, so we said the second thing. If the first thing is identity, the second thing is desires. The second thing that has to be actively cultivated in order to pursue holiness is our desires. Look at Romans uh, chapter six, verses 12. Now, where we left off, we left off at verse 11 where he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a statement of identity. And then he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Go back to the beginning of that section there, verse 12, and look again. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. All right, what Paul is pointing out is sin's strategy. What sin wants to do is plant in you certain desires because you will always do what you desire to do, right? You and I, whatever it is that we want, 
Whatever we desire, we act out of those desires. And so what Paul is saying is don't present your bodies as members of sin to be subject to the passions of sin. He's saying that what sin will do is try and cultivate desires within you, passions within you, so that you will want to do things that are impure and wrong, and you have to cut off those desires. You have to figure out a way to starve the desires that cause you to move towards sinful actions. That's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter six. And he's saying, look, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna live out of your desires, so you have to exchange your desires. And the first way to understand that is to live out of your identity, to know who you are, what you've been done. But the second thing, and it's exceedingly practical, is just to say, if sin wants to grow desires in us that are counter to holiness, because we do what we desire, then we have to exchange those desires for different desires. So that's what he's talking about when he says that we shouldn't present our bodies and our minds to sin, but present them to God. That's a great visual image, by the way, that he's using there. If you can picture that in your mind, to submit the desires that you feel that pull you towards certain actions, to take those and rather than present them to sin as an offering to sin, to present those to God and say, these desires that I feel, I I want to bring them to you. So the question becomes, okay, well, how do I, aren't desires uncontrollable? Like, don't I just feel what I feel and desire what I desire? Isn't it just kind of, isn't that kind of the way it works? Is there anything that I can actually do then to cultivate holy desires and not unholy ones? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And I'll give you just one strategy for that, and it would be this. And there's more than one, but I think, a key one is this, is you have to learn to deny the fulfillment of desires so that that without their fulfillment of desires, they shrivel up and they die. So when you have a desire, one of the most helpful things to me is to remind myself that I'm I'm not going to stop desiring. So here's what I think we do. I think we say, if I could just stop desiring to do that sinful thing, then I would stop doing it. And that's true enough. But one of the things that we do in order to stop desiring it is to stop doing the sinful thing, the fulfillment of that desire. If I don't let myself go to the fulfillment of that desire, then what will happen is the desire itself will shrivel up and die eventually, right? I mean, you can see this, maybe a good illustration is diet, right? If you're like, I know I shouldn't eat donuts, but I really love and desire donuts. Like I really want to desire donuts. Donuts, by the way, are not necessarily sinful. Okay, so don't, don't go there, because I'm a donut lover, right? But let's just say, like, I shouldn't be eating an overabundance of donuts, right? And, but I really like donuts. Well, if I stop eating donuts over time, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose a taste for donuts. I'm going to start to realize that I have different tastes. My, I'm going to change the taste that I have so that over time. But it's not, I'm not going to, on day one, go, I don't desire donuts anymore. I'm going to have to go, I still desire donuts, but I'm not going to eat the donuts, You deny the fulfillment of the desire and over time it kills the desire itself. Now there are exceptions to that. Here's what I wanna say. There are times, there are times, I think that works by and large most of the time. We deny the fulfillment of the desire and over time the desire lessens, weakens, and perhaps even goes away altogether. That's not always true. There are times where we would deny the fulfillment of a desire and the desire itself does not actually go away. I don't, want, I don't want to lead you to believe that that will always cause the desire to stop. There will be times, there will be things, certain passions that perhaps will continue to linger even while you deny the fulfillment. That does not mean that it's okay to partake of the fulfillment of that desire. 
even if the desire does not go away, if it's impure, it is, that is no um, permission to partake of the desire. You must continue to deny the desire in order to glorify God and trust that even if that desire doesn't go away, there will be other rising desires that will be even stronger, that will be even greater. The desires to be with God, to be in relationship with him, for him to speak to you, to be used to build his kingdom, even while some desires may persist. Those desires will grow and grow stronger even if this one doesn't go away ultimately. The last thing that happens again and again, I noticed this this week, as, or the last couple of weeks as I was studying for this sermon, and I just had not noticed it before. Uh, those other two things I'd kind of seen a lot when I'd be examining the scriptures on how to pursue holiness, and I'd say, oh yeah, absolutely, I've got to cultivate certain right desires and put away wrong desires. I've got to know who I am in Christ and my identity. Those are pretty clear to me. This next one was, was sort of, it was like I, God opened my eyes to it, and it was so interesting to me because it happens again in 1 Peter in chapter 1 where there's this command to be holy as I am holy. That's what Peter says the Lord has said to us. He's quoting from Leviticus, and he's saying, be holy as I am holy. But there's something that he does before that, and it happens in Colossians chapter 3 as well. And I want to point you to Colossians chapter 3. The last thing that we're told again and again in terms of pursuing holiness is that we have to have a clear vision of our future as followers of Jesus. Flip with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter three. And I want you to see this, verses one to four. And we'll put it up on the screen for you. I think our team has it up on the screen for you. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. He says this. He says, if you then have been raised with Christ. There's that identity piece again, right? Straight from Romans chapter six, same deal. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, set your minds on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not talking about who you are in Christ, your identity. What Paul is talking about <coughs> and what Peter is talking about is what will happen when Christ returns. Set your minds on things that are above where your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, the, the fulfillment of who you will be when Christ returns is already seen by God. And I don't know exactly what it means, honestly, when it says your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's not another you sitting up in heaven, right? Uh, but there is a way in which the completed, fulfilled version of who you are is seen by God and exists with God in heaven at, the, at, at his throne. And he says, when Christ returns, then you will become that thing. You'll become the holy person that God intended you to become. Peter says, Set your mind on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what struck me this week is how powerful a motivation this is. What Paul and Peter are both trying to give us in our pursuit of holiness is a reminder that if we will regularly 
cause ourselves to think about what is going on in the throne room of God and what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, that it will be fuel for the fire of the pursuit of holiness. It'll be gasoline for our car, so to speak. It's meant to drive us forward. And so it's a simple thing, right? It's not complex, but what he's saying is, I want you to regularly think about heaven. I want you to regularly think about what it's gonna be like when Jesus comes back and he makes all things new and there's no more sin and there's no more mourning and there's no more crying. I want you to think about what it's gonna be like when there's no more sun and moon because Jesus is the sun. He is the light of eternity. I want you to think about what it's gonna be like when I come back. So let me give you a couple aids because I, that sounds probably overly, sim- overly simple But the thing is, the more you set your mind on what it's gonna be like when Christ comes back, the more prone you are to put away things that aren't going to continue to be able to exist when he does, right? So when we do that, when we get this clear picture of the future, it reminds us how good it will be one day. It reminds us that our perseverance towards holiness will be rewarded. And it also reminds us that the things that we've entertained that aren't holy, that aren't pure, are gonna be burned up and we're gonna suffer loss because of them. That's 1 Corinthians chapter three. That those things will be burned up and go away. So a couple places, just pretty key places in the scriptures that talk about a vision of this day when Jesus comes back. Revelation chapter 19 through chapter 22, the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19 through chapter 22. Revelation chapter four, my favorite vision of the throne room of God. Second Thessalonians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter three. And Matthew chapter 24. Now let me close by saying this, and then we'll sing a song together. But I think we're gonna sing holy, holy, holy. Yeah, Nick, is that right? That's probably going to close with today, right? Two mistakes that we make in our pursuit of holiness. The first is this, is to think that because we've been given a new identity and God says, I've made you holy by the blood of Jesus, that we don't have to do anything to grow in holiness or to pursue it. That's error number one. And I find that often as believers, we are not very, we're motivated to pursue being faithful, to even to persevere, but I don't find that we're very set upon being holy. I think we have a culturally conditioned holiness. We'll be as holy as we need to based upon our context. But that's not holy enough. The standard for holiness is not being more holy than your neighbor. That leads to self-righteousness. The holiness that is required of us is the holiness that, is, that marks the character of God himself. That's the standard. Now, the, the second mistake, I think, is to, is to think that we can do it ourselves. If the first mistake is to say, I don't have to do anything, the second mistake is to say, I have to do everything, right? Is to say, I have to figure it out. And friends, I just want you to understand that without Christ in your life, at the center of your life, the pursuit of holiness becomes the pursuit of some unattainable moral purity standard. And, it, and it, all it will really lead to is if you do well in that, right? if you do pretty well in that, all that's gonna lead to apart from Christ is a sense of that you're a good person. It's gonna just lead to self-righteousness. And self-righteousness condemns just as fast as moral impurity because neither of them lead you to the throne of Jesus. Neither of them lead you to the necessity of the cross of Jesus to say, you have to be the one. You have to be the coal that cleanses my lips, like Isaiah. Shall we sing holy to the Lord? Let's do that. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are holy, and we live in the tension of knowing that you have both made us holy and that we are not yet holy as we have been called to be holy. So help us to hear these commands from scriptures. These are not requests that you've made of us. When you command us, be holy as I am holy. None of us will see you without perfect holiness. So we both thank you that by the blood of Jesus, we can be made holy so that we might see you and also that we have now within us the power of your spirit to pursue holiness. Let us not give in to this way of thinking that says because we'll never fully accomplish holiness in this life that it's not to be bothered to be pursued. Help us not to think that way, Lord. I know that I can confess. I confess. I slip into that way of thinking too often. I'll never get there, so why bother? No. Teach us to be a people who pursue holiness because you've commanded it and because you are our king and we submit to you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.